Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Well, if you were here last Sunday, uh, you'll recall that we talked uh, uh, about uh, our position as believers uh, in the earth. Jesus made this statement. We'll refer to it again later. He said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And he said, but salt, if it loses its, its flavoring, its saltiness, then it's good for nothing. And, and it's just to be tossed out, trodden underfoot by men. And then he also said, you are the light of the world. And he said, but you don't take a light and hide it under a, under a basket. Instead, you put it up on a lampstand so that everyone in the house can see the light. And so he said, let your light shine so that men may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. And, and I, he, though he didn't go back and, and touch on the salt, I'm sure he's saying, remain salty. Remain influential in your generation. Make a difference in the world around you. Amen. Be that preserving uh, uh, power and influence in in society. Amen. So we looked at that and we looked at uh, the fact that, go with me over to Hebrews chapter one. I want to just recap a few things that I said last last week and then go a little further because I didn't get very far in what I really intended uh, as my primary focus last week. So Hebrews chapter one, let's look again at verse number one. Hebrews 1 1 says, God, who at sundry times or various times in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He said that in various times and various ways, God spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Pointed out the fact that in all of the other ages of, of God's dealings with man, this is, not, this is not talking so much about the eternity before the earth was created and, and populated, but since man, God has put man on this planet, he has spoken two men and raised up men to be powerful witnesses for him in the earth. He raised up Noah in a time of incredible darkness in the world, incredible depravity. The Bible says that the imagination of men's hearts were just wicked all the time. Bloodshed, brutality controlled the planet. And God raised, did I say Moa, Moses? Noah, God raised Noah up at a time like that and made him a powerful witness to, to his day. Now, his day rejected him, but they couldn't say they didn't have a witness. And when the, when the water started rising, they realized that they had turned a deaf ear to the witness of God. But God witnessed to his generation through Noah. He later witnessed to his generation through a man named Abraham and set the course at the... At the uh, uh, ministering to Abraham and empowering him and making covenant with him. He set the course of, of, of the, the nation of Israel. 
But more importantly than that, he set the course for the introduction of Christ into the world. So God spoke powerfully through Abraham. God spoke powerfully through Moses after that. I said last week, wow, you could go on all day about how great a man Moses was and what a witness he was to his generation. The Bible said there was never a man like him that spoke to God face to face. He would come down off the mountain and the people couldn't even look at him. He was so, his, his, his whole countenance was so clothed in glory. And he was a powerful witness in his generation. And then we have King David. And you know, I'm just skipping over, you know, the King David, what a powerful witness he was in his time. All of the prophets that God raised up from Samuel right on up, you know, through, through uh, uh, Malachi, all of the prophets of the Old Testament, they were men that God raised up to make a difference in the world, to make, to give witness, to bear witness of the Lord, to represent the Lord so that people of their generation could know God because God put a man in front of them. But nobody, nobody even closely compares with the one that he did bring eventually. It says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Glory to God. The whole purpose of the Old Testament was, was to introduce Christ into the earth. And what, like I said, there's not any comparison with him and any other person that's ever lived uh, he, he stands at the division of time in the calendar. Christ came into the earth, glory to God. But, but the, the, the thing that I pointed out last week is that it's all about Christ. Don't misunderstand me. It's all about Christ. Paul said, I don't preach myself, but I preach Christ. But you can't preach Christ without preaching his body. Because when Jesus was here in his, in his, uh, on his first advent in the flesh, the word Christ, of course, you've heard me say this many times, the word Christ is the equivalent of the Old Testament Messiah. It means the anointed one. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one, the only anointed one. But when he is crucified, buried, raised from the dead, but when he ascended on high and sat down, oh, glory to God, something completely unexpected happened. And this was part of the mystery that Paul was talking about that was hidden from ages past. Now, there was some revelation in the Old Testament about Christ, but even then, they thought Christ was gonna be a political leader. He was gonna be the Messiah, but he was gonna come in and defeat all of their enemies and, and usher in a time of prosperity you know, for the Jewish people. They didn't understand the spiritual reality that he would actually be God in the flesh. They, that part they didn't see. And they saw nothing about the church. Never heard of the church, never thought of the church, never even, there was never even any idea revealed uh, in the word of God or to men. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, he did something marvelous in that now Christ is the head and people who believe on him are baptized into him. We become one with him and we are his body and he is the head. 
So Christ today, in one sense, in one sense, there's one Lord Jesus, the Christ. But in another sense, Christ is not just one man. Christ is Jesus and the body. Because you can no more separate the body of Christ from Christ than you can separate your body from your head. Your head and your body are united and go together. And you can't have one functioning without the other. And if you understand the truth of the body of Christ, because God ordained it this way, not because of any lack in God, not, not because of any lack of power, there's nothing God can't do. I'm not saying that, but in, in light of the fact that he created one new man, took Jew and Gentile together and created a new man, the new creation, the body of Christ. Christ, the Lord Jesus, can no more do without us than we can do without our bodies. Glory to God. He is, he is the head, but we are the body. And so the plan of God was to bring Jesus into the earth as the ultimate witness. But then Jesus did that to bring up his body. And you see, Jesus was only here for 30, 33 years. He accomplished his work and he went back to heaven. But he raised up the church. The church is the witness to this generation. Of Christ, not of ourselves, of him. But we're the witness. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Go with me over to uh, Ephesians and look at the third chapter. We looked at this last week. Ephesians chapter 3. Before you go there, go to chapter 1. Look at the very last verse of chapter 1. Just to save time, we'll just read that one verse, but if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll, you'll understand what the context is. Ephesians 1, 23, which is his body. Now you go back to the previous verse. Made him to be head over all things to the church. So it's the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now hold your place there and go to Colossians and go to the second chapter of Colossians and look at verse nine. For in him, and that's referring to, to Christ in the previous verse, for in him Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In other words, that word Godhead just simply means deity. In him, in Christ, dwells the fullness of deity bodily. It's in, in Christ is all the fullness of deity. But it dwells in him bodily. Now that's first and foremost talking about his physical body. He, he, is, he is God in his own person. He is God the Son. And, and he's, not, he's not part God, he's all God. He's not little God, he's big God. He's, he's God. So that, this scripture says, tells us that, that in him dwells the fullness, the completeness of God. But now over in, in Ephesians chapter one, turn back over there, 
Verse 23 says, which the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who, who uh, fills all in all. Sometimes modern translations have tried to make those two verses say the same thing. I've noticed that in a lot of places in the New Testament where there is similar wording, but they're not the same. Sometimes translators will try to, to reconcile two verses of scripture and so kind of generalize them and make them say the same thing. This is not saying the same thing. This is not talking about the fullness of God dwelling in Christ. He says his body is the fullness of him who fills all in all. This word fullness is also translated completeness. The church, verse 22, verse 23, which is his body, the completeness of him who fills all in all. Christ fills everything. He fills all in all because by him were all things made that were made. By him, the worlds were created. We read that in in Hebrews. So he fills all things, but his body has become the fullness of him. How is that possible? The Lord Jesus Christ in the plan of God, the wisdom of God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, all three of them are in on this. (laughs) they ordained that the eternal son of God would come to this planet lay his life down at the utter amazement of the angels we talked last week about how the angels at, at creation when God created the universe and the worlds the physical worlds they'd never seen anything physical before I don't guess they were spirits God's spirit they lived in spirit land Ever been to Disneyland? They lived in spirit land. And when God created the universe, they'd never seen anything like, they've seen planets before. Never, never conceived of, of how the, the galaxies and, and, and all of the star, you know, that's even just incomprehensible to us. It, it was pretty stunning to them. And when he created the earth, Such a special place, unlike evidently, I know there's people that think there's other people out there. I don't know if there are other people out there. I don't know if there are any other civilizations or not, but I know this, that at the right hand of God, there's a human being. There's the Lord Jesus Christ who became a homo sapien, who became a man, who became an earthling man. I don't see any Klingons at the, at the right hand of the Father. Some of the young people don't understand that reference, but I don't see anybody from any other planets. I don't see redemption being played out anywhere else. At the right hand of God, there is the Lord Jesus Christ who was one of us. He came to this planet. Tells me this planet is the focus of God's love and attention. And when the angels saw it, the Bible says that they danced and rejoiced and shouted at the magnificence of his creation. How they must have been horrified because the Bible says they don't understand the things of redemption. And it says they bend low and stoop low to look into with with amazement and, and examination Uh, trying to ponder and figure out what is this redemption all about. This is what uh, Peter said. So can you imagine their horror when 
God who created all of these things humbled himself and became a man in the condition mankind was in. In the state of the world, fallen, disobedient, rebellious, sinful man. And God takes on flesh and becomes a man and horror of horrors allows himself to be murdered, brutalized and murdered and hung on a cross and die as a scapegoat for all of the debauchery and sin and filth of this world. Took responsibility for it. Took it on himself. The Bible says that the heavens were darkened The angels were waiting for Jesus to just utter a word, just one word, just give us one word. We'll come down there and we'll get you off that cross. Jesus said, I can call legions of angels. There would have been nothing left of that place. Angels were waiting for word. Dear God, deliver, send us silence. God turned his father, the father turned his back and Jesus bowed his head and gave up the ghost after saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The angels, like I said last week, there's not any indication in the Bible. Now we know that the angels have never been offered redemption. We know that. They've never been offered the angels that fell. Satan and all of the, the angels that we've never been offered redemption. But just occurred to me, I guess, middle of two weeks ago when I was looking at this, it occurred to me and I, and I, I stopped to think, I don't see any reference in the Bible at all where God has ever said that, that he loved angels. I don't, I don't for God so loved angels, I don't see anything like that. I'm not saying that, that he hates angels. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the angels have never been an object of his love. They don't really know anything about the love of God. They've never been, there's, like I said, maybe somebody can correct me, but I don't see any reference in the Bible where it says that God loves angels and that they're aware of his love and respond to his love. They just do what they're told. They're amazed at his majesty and his power. Like I said, they were just, they shouted for joy at the, at the wonder of creation. God speaks and they go. He says do and they do. But as far as him loving them, having compassion, we don't, we don't see anything about that in the Bible. Maybe he does. I just, I don't know where it is. But they saw in the, in the incarnation, the life, the death, the burial, the suffering of Christ. They saw God humbling himself, the humbling nature of love. That someone would love anyone like this to lay their lives down for someone for an, an entire race, a, a humankind so undeserving. God would lay his life down, suffer in order to redeem them. That must be something the angels just 
are amazed at. That's why they, the Bible shows them just were like this, like what is going on? Praise the Lord. Now look at uh, Ephesians 2, or 3 rather, Ephesians 3. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation, the stewardship of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly, briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, the Jews knew that they would be partakers of the blessing of Christ. They didn't understand fully what that was, but they understood that he would be their Messiah and they would be the benefactors. They would be the ones to, to, to be blessed by him and partake of his promise. But that he would bring together, like he says in, in uh, uh, chapter 2, Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one, that's both Jew and Jew, Gentile, has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments created in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, so making peace. That's the new creation created from Jew and Gentile. So back to chapter three, verse six, that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of its power. Now notice, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent, to the intent for this purpose that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. See, God sent Jesus as the final ultimate witness to this world. But he raised up the church and made the church part of him. So anything that is of Christ is of us. And the intent is, is more than just this world, but that the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, angels, Good and bad. Because you know later in Ephesians it talks about we wrestle not against principalities and powers but against rulers of darkness of this world and so forth. So there are evil as well as good principalities and powers that operate uh, in the spirit realm. And it's it's the intent of God that the church be the ones to to, uh, 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 show and display the wisdom of God. We are on display. Angels are still looking and they don't understand it. But the purpose of God is for us to demonstrate to them his grace, his mercy, and his wisdom. Oh, glory to God. 
I think last week I, I talked about Angel University. We're the, we're the professors of Angel University. We're, God put us here to teach the angels in heaven, all of God's hosts, so that they can see his wisdom and his greatness and his love and his goodness and his power demonstrated in the church. But not just the, not just the good angels. All of those fallen angels, demon spirits. Jesus went to heaven, but he left us here. And the purpose is to demonstrate to even the fallen spirits that, that are, are allowed to remain on this earth until Jesus comes back and after the, the tribulation period and he takes the devil and, and puts him in chain for a thousand years. Up until that time, the devil and his hosts and his demons and all of those evil spirits, they're, they're still here. Well, guess what? We're to teach them too. We're to be, a, we're to be a, a, an example, an object lesson of God's mercy and goodness. Oh, glory to God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I tell you what, it's just a topic I cannot get enough of. <laughs> Praise the Lord. We talked last week about the fact that God's put us here for a purpose. The church is here to be a witness to this generation. And in any nation that honors the gospel, God will bless. Now, in one sense, God only takes notice of one nation as a people that he recognizes. He still recognizes the nation of Israel. Now they are in rebellion. They're in disobedience. They've rejected Christ, but God hasn't rejected them. God still has a plan and a purpose for his ancient people. And he will fulfill that purpose in, 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 in later times. So he recognizes the Jew. He recognizes the, the nation of Israel. All other nations of the earth just comprise the, the Gentiles. But any nation of men who will honor the God of the Bible, just like in the Old Testament when the other people around the nation of Israel would come to Israel and begin to worship with, with them when their kings would bring homage and, 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 and be good to the nation of Israel, God would bless them. So any nation today that honors the gospel, God will bless we saw that the scripture says over in Proverbs chapter 14 that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Notice it's any people. So this applies to any nation. Just as sin is a reproach to any people, righteousness will exalt any nation. Now it is an, an historical fact no one can dispute this. That God exalted the United States of America because of righteousness. Because of righteousness, because of the church. Because back in the, in the early 17th century, around 1633, the colonists that had come here, you know, from, primarily from Europe, 
almost exclusively from Europe. They came here because of religious persecution. They wanted a place where they could worship God. They were mostly Puritans. And they believed God. They were, they, were, they were Christians. They loved God. But after they got here, life was hard in the colonies. The, the, the Revolutionary War uh, uh, that, that, that followed the uh, conflicts, internal conflicts. It was just a, it was a tough nation to, to subdue. And spirituality really began to wane, you know, in the, in the early 1600s. And there were churches, but there weren't a lot of churches. And the people in the churches were backslidden. They had, they had, uh, they had accepted policies to try to, to uh, get ahead of the decline of membership and people attending church because church attendance is way down. They, they began to open their doors through uh, 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 covenants that would say, you know, you could be a member of the church. You really don't have to believe anything. Just don't give us any trouble. We'll let you be in the church. And it was just a backslidden policy. And the, the religion and spirituality in America was at a terrible place. God raised up a preacher by the name of, of Jonathan Edwards, Massachusetts, I think, and he began to preach on the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, calling people to repentance. And, and, and revival broke out in New England, and it spread. And it just hundreds and thousands of people were being saved, and churches were revitalized. That's called revival. Revival out of as a result of prayer and desperation. God, people of God, preachers began to call out to God, and God sent a revival. And that revival so influenced the founding of our of our nation. The 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 uh, uh, writing of our founding documents were heavily influenced by righteousness by the principles of the Bible, by the God of the Bible, reverence for God. And that righteousness exalted the United States, made it great, made it a great nation. Well, like I said last week, you hear, have you ever heard the slogan, make America great again? Well, Christ is who made America great to begin with and only Christ will make America great again. Now, people have their part to play, but don't, don't misunderstand. Christ is required. If we're going to be great again as a nation, Christ must make us great. They're, the people of God must be revived again so that we begin to influence our, our day, our culture, our time, our world. As goes the church, so goes the nation. That's our job, is to be on fire for God. I said this last week, I'll say it again. All our current praying, and we pray. We're praying right now. We're praying about the, about the election still. We're praying about uh, several things. All of our praying will be in vain if we fail to consecrate ourselves again to becoming the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Compromise has silenced us. That's incontrovertible too. Compromise in the church has made us irrelevant to this culture. 
That's not anything to shout about. That's just the truth. A compromised church is a weak church. We've compromised. I'm not talking about this congregation. I'm just talking about the church. The church has compromised so much in order to be accepted by the world that the world, listen, the world never responds right to that. They never, they never appreciate that. The world will never respect a church that's not godly. They might, they might criticize and fight a godly church and an on-fire church, but they respect it and they'll never respect a weak and compromised church. And that's what's happened to the church in America. It's been compromised and it's become irrelevant. Only consecration can remove the basket and make us salty again. Only consecration can do that. Go with me to Matthew 6. Matthew 6. God put the church here for a purpose. And it wasn't to be like the world. (laughs) God put the church here to be a witness for him, not to mirror the world. To hold a mirror up to the world and say, who? Now, look, we're like you. No, to be different. In uh, Matthew, in Matthew six, he said in verse thirty-three, "Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you." All what things? The things of life. The things of life that people are so concerned about, spend so much time on. He said, put me first. That's what God is saying to the church today. Go back, get back to putting me first. Not Not just putting me first, seeking me first. That's what God's saying to the church. Start seeking me again. Above everything else. Above everything else in life. Put me first. And my righteousness, he's saying. And all these things will be added to us. If we want America to be great again, it's going to take the church humbling itself and returning to putting him first in everything. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm only 60, almost 68 years old. So I don't go back, you know, a long, long time. But back in the 1950s, growing up in the 50s and in the 60s, particularly the early part of the 60s. There was, in, in our church culture, the denomination I was in, there was a real hunger for God. Men and women regularly sought God. Now, they didn't understand some things about faith and they were sort of legalistic and some things. I understand all of that. And, and thank God we've learned uh, a lot how to, how to live by faith and so forth. But something they had that we don't see a whole lot of today was a hunger for God, a, a truly seeking God mentality. People would get on their face and cry out to God, 
just for fellowship, not because they felt like they weren't in fellowship, but just to, to have fellowship, to experience a greater fellowship, to know him better, to be more pleasing. There was a seeking after God. That's what the church has got to get back to. God put the church here to teach. But we've, we've so become like the world that we've not, we're not effective like we should be. And in order for us to be the demonstration of God's grace and power and his wisdom and his love and all of those things, righteousness, a hunger for righteousness, rightness, needs to return to the church. Amen. And, and I'm not being... I'm not being trying to be smart or anything when I say this, not being critical. It, it's because I appreciate amens. All preachers like to hear people say amen. It's like sick them to a dog, you know. But all of the amens in the world won't replace getting on your face in your private time and devoting yourself and consecrating yourself to seeking God. Can't be accomplished in one service. Go with me to... Mark chapter 4. Mark 4. Verse 18. We'll not read the whole parable. If you know your Bible, you'll know something about it. Just for, But if not, go back and read the whole parable later. But for the sake of time, look at verse number 18, verse 19. But these are the ones sown among thorns... If there's ever been a description of this day, I think it's verse 18 and 19. These are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, literally that's the cares of this age, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The cares of this age. The Amplified Bible says the cares, the anxieties, and the distractions of this age. There's distractions all around us. <laughs> this year and 2020 has been crazy distractions. But I'm going to tell you what. Yeah, this has been an unusual year, but... 2019 was a distracted. There, the cares, anxieties, and distractions of this age have been going on and the church has been following those things and allowing the cares of this age, the anxieties and distractions of this age, all of the things that go on in the flashing lights and the, in the uh, 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 presentations that are all around us. Caring about things we have no reason to be cared about, careful about. The deceitfulness of riches. We believe in God blessing and prospering us because it's in the Bible. And he expects us to believe him for prosperity. But prosperity is deceitful. Money is deceitful. And if you don't think it is, if you're not on guard against it, your prosperity can be the worst thing that ever happens to you. I've seen it too many times. 
Too many times I've seen people who are hungry for God get a hold of the word and realize God wants to bless them and they begin to believe that, exercise their faith in that and they're giving, they're coming to church, God starts blessing them and and the next thing you know, a a couple years later they start missing church because they're too busy to come to church because their prosperity, their businesses have taken off and they don't have time for God anymore and I've seen them completely backslide and not even in the church today at all. Riches are deceitful. And then the desire for other things. Oh my. The desire for other things. Luke's version of this parable, he he said, the pleasures of life. The desire for other things. Oh Lord. So many Christians, you see them in church every Sunday, but outside of church, what, what do they pursue? Well, just, let's bring it on home. What do you pursue? What do I pursue? What, are my, what is my week made out of? What's it like? Where do I spend my time? Where's my affection? Where is my interest? What, what do I spend my time reading about and thinking about and, and looking forward to and seeking after? Is it more of God or is it more of this world stuff? Desire for other things. Church, nothing in this world should, have, should be on any, not even anywhere close to how much we desire God and his presence in our life and his, and his favor and, and, and his will being done in our lives. You can't desire that too much. You can't overdo the desire for God. You can't become too radical or too obsessed with loving God and pleasing him. Just can't. It just, it will not pull you down. It will elevate you up. But when we begin to turn our attentions or allow our attention to be diverted so much of our time, and I could list a whole litany of things, but people would think I'm picking on them. You yourselves, you know what I'm talking about. So many things that take up our lives and are so important to us, are they really important? We take our last breath, will they mean anything? One thing will matter, what you did for God. Amen, Amen. That's, that's what will matter in the end. Hallelujah. And see, it takes a church on fire when people, the founding of our nation, it was, un, it was not uncommon. The first great awakening, the second great awakening. People have to be stirred. You remember when I did my teaching on revival? People backslide. <laughs> Backsliding is a, is, a, is, a, is a fact of history. Israel constantly backslid. The church constantly backslides. And I won't go any, I won't bring it any closer than that. <laughs> Backsliding is, is what humans do. Okay? And 
there was so much backsliding. That's what necessitated. That's what, that's what people, that's how people begin to cry out for God. And there was this first great awakening, but it wasn't very long until people got satisfied and they lost their hunger for God. Things began to level off and wasn't very long, began to dive again. So there had to be a second great awakening. And I think there's been a third. I don't <laughs> lose count of all these awakenings, but We're at that place again in America. And a lot of people know it. It seems a lot of people are talking about it. But I'm not seeing that hunger. Not really. I'm seeing the awareness. But I'm not seeing the following up on that. With real heartfelt seeking after God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Praise you, Lord. Glory, 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 glory. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. Father, we, we know that we fall short in many things. Father, we repent. and We lay our hearts out before you. Open our hearts to you, Lord. Examine us as individuals and as a church. What things are, what, what's really important to us? Lord, we have to ask that of ourselves. What is really important in this life? Not just on Sundays, but the rest of the week. Not just on Wednesdays the rest of our time, what is important to us? Father, we consecrate ourselves. Lord, work in our hearts. Work in our lives, Lord. Work in our church. And not just here, but in the church all over America. That repentance will be followed up by hunger and seeking after you, Lord. Father, America can be great again. If righteousness exalted us once, it can certainly exalt us again. It would certainly be your will. Father, we pray as a a church and as individuals Father, that our love for you, our seeking after you will be genuine, heartfelt, earnest, urgent, urgent, urgent. And Father, only out of that do we pray for America to be great again. Only out of that, Father. So we consecrate our hearts and our lives today. Glory to God. To putting you first in our days and in our weeks and our time above everything else, Lord. Hallelujah. Accept us today. Accept our prayers, our repentance, and our faith. 
We intend. We intend to do better. We intend. We make a, we make a consecration, a dedication of that today in our hearts. To live life more circumspectly, more purposefully. Keeping everything in their proper boundaries and in the right lane. Priorities would be right. So that above everything else, Father, we draw close to you. More than, close, more than drawing close to sports, entertainment, fashion, popularity, trends. More than any of our favorite pastimes. That all of those things would, would pale. They, kept, they have their place. But they would pale in comparison to our red hot firing love for you, Father. Our red hot passion for you in our lives, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.